following message is by a guest speaker at Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good evening. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Jonah. It's an honor to be with you this evening. It's a privilege to get to share God's word with you. So it's a time of year when uh, many people make New Year's resolutions. Uh, Personal commitments for how this year is going to be better or different than last year. And maybe you're here and you made some. According to one research institute, about 45% of Americans every year make some sort of a New Year's resolution, even though only 8% of Americans report having some kind of success in keeping them. And of these resolutions that are made, the overwhelming majority relate to some kind of a commitment to physical fitness, to go to the gym, to work out regularly, to eat healthy, and to get in shape, And maybe if you're a person who normally goes to the gym, you're enjoying all of the new people that are in the gym for the next couple weeks. But, but, but there's this profound desire to commit to physical fitness. Because when we don't have our physical fitness, we put on more calories than we can burn off. Uh, we feel unhealthy. We feel sluggish. We feel out of, sh- out of shape and out of sorts. Now as important as physical fitness is... This evening, I'd like us to consider another kind of fitness. Let's call it spiritual fitness. Now, what might that look like? Well, in order to answer this question, I'd like to revisit a familiar text uh, that's probably well known to many of us. It's the story of Jonah. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard it. But don't stop me if you've heard it before, even if you could recite it. Gone are the days when the story of a prophet running from God, being chased by a storm, being swallowed by a fish, and then reluctantly leading a revival in the most evil city in the ancient world would fill us with surprise and capture our imagination. In fact, we might be here and we might think that the most interesting questions about the book of Jonah are things like this. Just what kind of a fish is supposed to have swallowed this man? And is that kind of a thing really possible? But those questions are not on the radar of this ancient storyteller. You see, familiarity doesn't just breed contempt. Familiarity can breed passivity. And we can become so familiar with cherished biblical narratives that that it's like we get inoculated against their power to speak into our lives and call out meaningful change. And when this happens, we lose our spiritual fitness and begin to suffer from a condition that we could call spiritual fatness. Spiritual fatness is a condition of the soul that occurs when our education exceeds our action. When our education exceeds our action. When we are overstuffed with information that we fail to exercise in obedience. It's when you know all the right words to say, all the right words to sing, and all the right words to pray. But those words never produce a meaningful change in the way that you live every day. 
Now, if any part of that resonates with you as it does with me, then now we are ready to hear the story of Jonah. Because Jonah is the poster boy for spiritual fatness. What we find in this story is a story in which everyone and everything responds to God exactly as they should. With the exception of the one person who knows more about God than anyone else in the story. A man named Jonah. But as we look at his story today, we begin to see that this is not just a story about Jonah. It's a story about us. And as we see the vision of God in this text, we'll see that God's word exposes our passivity and evokes our participation. It exposes us in our passivity and it calls forth or evokes our participation because the message that this text has for us is that knowing the true God should lead us to obey him wholeheartedly, immediately, and completely. In light of who God is, this is the only response that makes sense. In the time that we have together today, I want to look at this familiar story and see if we can't look at it with fresh eyes that maybe God, through his Spirit, would speak through his word. Let's look at the first verses of Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let me stop right here and make two observations. The first one is this. Jonah's disobedience is surprising. It's unprecedented and unexpected. Because you see, there are other prophetic books that start in a very similar way that this book begins. Now the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, son of so-and-so, saying... That's the way the book of Hosea starts. That's the way that the book of Micah starts. But in each of these other prophetic books, the focus there is on the message that God has for the prophet. But when we read this book and this story of Jonah, we see that the focus is not so much on the message, but on the response of the messenger. God says to Jonah, arise, go, cry out. But Jonah rises to flee. And when he does, we know that this is not a normal prophet story. The second thing we notice is that Jonah rises to flee to the furthest possible destination to the ancient Hebrew mind, to a place called Tarshish, a place that is repeated three times in one verse for dramatic effect. Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. This is a ridiculously faraway place, the most distant city in the then known world. Let me show you a little animation to show you a sense of the geography here. Here is Jerusalem, where Jonah probably was. This is Joppa, his port city. This is the place where uh, God wanted Jonah to go, to the city of uh, Nineveh, up here about 566 miles away from Jerusalem. Now this is Tarshish. 2,500 miles away from Jerusalem. It was literally the furthest place that they could think of. It would be like us saying, Jonah took a train to Timbuktu. He's not really going to, he's going to the ends of the earth. And when the Bible talks about the ships of Tarshish, it's talking about 
the people coming from the very ends of the earth because this was the furthest place they could think of. And even though God has told Jonah that he's in Nineveh, and that he sees what's going on in Nineveh, Jonah believes that he can go to a place where God will not see him, and that place is Tarshish. And you can imagine the ancient listeners sitting and listening to the story. Jonah went, where? Tarshish. Tarshish? He went to Tarshish. Three times it is repeated so that we would know that the thing that Jonah is doing here is not a normal thing for a prophet to do. Because the ancient listeners would have known what we know, that when God comes and speaks to you, the only appropriate response, the only response that makes sense is to move in obedience. Jonah does the unexpected things. And so, for the rest of the story, God must set out to remind Jonah of what Jonah should already know and how. And here we come to the next section, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each one cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. The rest of this chapter is driven by two major contrasts. Here's the first one. Passionate versus passive. Passionate versus passive. Jonah is a picture of passivity. But everyone and everything else in the story is passionate. It starts with God's passionate action. It says God hurls a wind to the sea. Strong verb. Hurls a wind to the sea. And when the wind hits the sea, the sea responds exactly the way that the sea should respond when God throws a wind at you. It rages in a storm. So now the storm is raging. The ship is caught in the storm. And the sailors on the ship now begin to respond exactly the way that you should respond when God throws a wind at the sea that causes a storm. They freak out. This is the perfect storm. A storm born on a wind thrown by God. So they respond in every way that they can. They respond emotionally with fear. They respond religiously. Each one cries out to their God. They respond physically. They hurl the cargo overboard. Notice that their action mirrors God's action. Just as God hurls the wind to the sea, now they are hurling the cargo overboard. Everyone is hurling, probably literally. But notice that while the response of the mariners is upward and outward, upward and outward, Jonah's response is to go down and in, into the innermost part of the ship and to do the most passive thing imaginable, to fall asleep. (laughs) This is a comedy. Think there's no comedy in the Bible? You're wrong. Jonah's actions are comic. In fact, a literal reading of verse 4 says in the Hebrew that the ship thought to itself that it would break apart. And I like the literal translation because it suggests that even the ship, an inanimate object, knows what's going on. The only one who doesn't know what's going on and does not respond the way that he should 
is Jonah. It stands out. It reminds me of this song from Sesame Street. Maybe you've heard it. It goes like this. Don't tell anyone. Okay, well, hopefully you got that. Um, If not, ask somebody later. But but this is the kind of contrast that is being created by the storyteller. Jonah's disobedience and Jonah's action in this story stands out starkly on the sacred page, just like the W among the twos. This is like a black and white character in a world full of color. Because God's world is full of, of passion Action, responsiveness to what God has done. The God who spoke it into existence. All of creation responds to God. All of creation. Read the Psalms. All of creation does exactly what God wants. And so that means when we fail to respond, it's like we are out of sync with the great dance of creation. One of these things is not like the others. In response to God's action, Or God's word. Passivity is irrational and unnatural. Sin makes you look stupid and silly. But God does not bow to our stupidity. He is not deterred by our passivity. God chases us. And though Jonah has responded to God's attention-getting storm with passivity, God sends another agent to get his attention, the captain. And what the captain says to Jonah is, to my mind, pretty astounding. Notice that the commands that the captain gives to Jonah are the exact same commands that Jonah has heard from God in the opening verses. Arise. Cry out. Arise. Call out to your God. Now think about this for a second. Jonah is probably huddled in the fetal position in the midst of a death-like sleep. And the words that are spoken to awake him are the exact same words that he heard from God at the very beginning. Arise! Call out! Even in his dreams, Jonah can't escape God's word. And neither can you. Because even when we run from him, even when we turn our back on him, God continues to call out to us in the moments when we least expect him and when we least deserve him. Have you been there? In a moment when you were, God was the furthest from your mind, and yet God continues to call out to you. In the moments when you least expect him and when 
you least deserve him. And this evening, God, through his Holy Spirit, is calling out to you, reaching out to you. Arise, call out to your God. Don't just sit there. Arise, awake, call out to your God. Will you respond with passivity or with passion? Let's look at the second second contrast in verses 7 through 12. And so they said, the sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. This is the second major contrast that we see in the story. Ignorant versus informed. Ignorant versus informed. See, throughout this section, the sailors are seeking knowledge. They don't know anything. They don't know why the storm is upon them. And so they seek knowledge in the only way they know how, a very pagan way of casting lots. It was similar to rolling dice. And because God, according to Proverbs 16.33, is sovereign even over seemingly random processes, like the casting of lots, the lot falls on Jonah, designates him as the culprit. And so now they know something. They know that he is the, the guilty one. And so they seek more knowledge. They ask him all of these questions. Who are you? What's your business? Where do you come from? What people do you belong to? They're seeking knowledge because they're ignorant. They're defined by this one characteristic ignorance. They don't know. This, by the way, is exactly how the Ninevites will be described in chapter 4. People who do not know. But notice, every single time they get a little bit more information, their response intensifies. In verse 5, it says that they feared. In verse 10, it says that they exceedingly feared. In verse 16, it says they exceedingly feared Yahweh. There's this buildup of response that every single time they get a piece of new information, it brings about a heightened passion, a heightened response. Every time they get a little bit more, they respond to the level of what they've heard. Meanwhile, Jonah is defined by one characteristic. He is informed. He has an immense amount of knowledge compared to the sailors. He knows exactly why this is happening. He knows who God is. He knows God's word. In fact, in response to all of their questions, Jonah quotes a psalm. Psalm 95.5, he says, Well, I fear Yahweh who made the sea and the dry land. This is amazing. Jonah is the kind of person who can recite the scriptures who can recite his creeds, but whose life shows absolutely no correspondence to the words that he quotes. Because if, as he says, Yahweh is the maker of the sea and the dry land, why try to flee him by the sea? And if he truly does fear Yahweh, as he says, 
Why hasn't he cried out to him? The only ones who have expressed any kind of fear or cried out to any god at all are pagan sailors. Now notice that the text never indicates anything like prayer or repentance from Jonah until chapter 2. And even there, it specifies it's not until after three days and three nights that Jonah finally begins to pray. In this chapter, when it comes to taking action, Jonah wants the sailors to do something to him. Throw me in, he says. What's going on here? Now remember that Jonah has never read the story of Jonah. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know that the Lord will appoint a great fish to swallow him. So where does this come from? Is human sacrifice just the ordinary prescription for stopping storms? If the solution is for him to go into the drink, why not jump in? What's going on here? Old Testament scholar Dennis McGarry suggests that given Jonah's behavior thus far, it would be more reasonable to believe that Jonah is, quote, just making this up. McGarry argues that Jonah hopes that the sailors will be judged for taking his life. That's, after all, what they're afraid of. And he tells the sailors to throw him into the sea, killing him, although the text never tells that this is God's desire. We know what God's desire is. He wants Jonah to arise and call out to his God. And if this is true, it suggests that Jonah's passivity is so deeply rooted that he would rather drown than call out to Yahweh his God. And yet, like good Christians, the pagan sailors try to save him. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on this innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. So after unsuccessfully trying to return to shore one more time, the sailors throw Jonah into the sea and they they beg God by name to show them mercy. You see, as soon as they learn God's name, they cry out to him by name. And amazingly, and I think ironically, the sea becomes calm and the sailors start worshiping. So that by the end of the chapter, Jonah, who knows Yahweh better than anyone, still has not cried out to him. But the sailor's confession is the theme of the story. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They almost inadvertently quote Psalm 115.3. Our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. The curtain comes down on Act 1. We've seen this comprehensive picture of a God who does what he pleases, of God's sovereignty, who is sovereign over the winds and the sea, over the casting of lots, over everything. But in response to this, only the pagans are worshiping. The prophet, the believer, is in the water. Let's take a step back for a second. This book was originally written as a critique, a powerful critique of the complacency of God's people, Israel. 
They were meant to and called to be a light to the nations, to show the world what it looks like to have Yahweh as your God, that all of the other gods of the other nations have to be carried, but Yahweh, he carries us. Show them what it's like to live under the reign of Yahweh. Show them what it's like, but instead of being a light to the nations, they wanted to be like the nations. They hoarded all of the knowledge that they had, and so the so-called pagans in Jonah have a more faithful response than God's prophetic people that Jonah represents. And so this book calls everyone, but especially those who call themselves God's people, to respond to God like the sea, like the ship, like the sailors, to obey him immediately, unconditionally, and completely. In light of who God is, this is the only response that makes sense. Now we read the story of Jonah and we laugh at Jonah, and we are meant to laugh at him, I think. We are meant to be astonished by his stubbornness and by his passivity. But like all good stories, and especially because this is a Holy Spirit-inspired story, it begins to dawn on us that this is not just a story about Jonah, but a story about us. It confronts our complacency, our passivity. Because without action, without obedience, without concrete action, we grow spiritually fat. We know so much. We obey so little. We've studied and learned. We can recite scripture and theology, all of which is admirable. But so many times, there is little correspondence between the words that we say and the lives that we lead. Like Jonah, we are portraits of spiritual fatness. I mean, think about it. We live literally in the information age, an age of unprecedented information. We have access to the best communicators. We can download the best sermons. We have innumerable feeds that are constantly being fed to us. And it's easy to think, and I know many times I find myself thinking that spiritual vitality will be found in another book or another sermon, another commentary. Just a little bit more information is all I'm missing before I find spiritual vitality. But this text shows us that spiritual vitality does not necessarily follow greater amounts of information. In fact, sometimes there is an inverse relationship between your vitality and how much you know. And maybe what we need at the beginning of this year is not necessarily new and greater knowledge. Maybe what God is calling us to do first is to respond to the knowledge that we have already been given. So what is that thing that God has been calling you to do, but you have been avoiding it? What is that area of your life where God has been putting his hand on it and saying this needs to change, but you have been ignoring his call? God is calling us to respond to his word with obedience. This is spiritual fitness. To move when God speaks. Maybe you're here and you don't really identify with Jonah. You identify with the sailors. You don't really know that much about God or the Bible. Um... You're new to faith or you're investigating. 
I hope you can see from this text, it doesn't really matter how much you know about the Bible right now. What matters is how you respond to what you do know. You may not know much. The sailors didn't know much, but they responded to God with passion. And every time they learned a little bit more, they responded with more passion. Heightened response. But my guess is that for many of us in this room, we look at Jonah and we see ourselves. We know so much. We obey so little. We are educated far beyond the level of our obedience. So many times people that don't know are more faithful than us. You see, one of the problems with being so regularly exposed to good teaching and preaching like many of you are, is it can actually become easier to harden your heart. Because you're so tempted to receive the Word of God as interesting or helpful information rather than personal address. In fact, one of the great dangers of listening to this sermon is that you would walk away thinking, oh wow, he said some things that I hadn't heard before, some new details about the text, and process this as new information. But when God's word is preached, it's not just information, it's a personal address. When somebody gets up and proclaims the word of God, God speaks, regardless of the eloquence of the speaker. God speaks through his word in personal address, and it's not just information. One of the great dangers of listening to a sermon on Jonah is that you would process it as more information. From the first chapter of Genesis, humanity is the only one of God's creations that are answerable. What I mean by that is that God creates by speaking, but it's not until verse 26 that God speaks to one of his creations and expects a response. Where are you, Adam? In chapter 2. Where are you, Adam? In chapter 3. It's not enough to hear the nature of the question evokes a response. When God speaks through his word, it's not to inform but to elicit a response. And what God has said to Adam, he says to us tonight, where are you? Where are you? You can't just sit there in response to that question. It's a relational act, and it must be responded to relationally. See, what hardens our heart is when we hear God's voice and consistently fail to respond. We're oversaturated by media, so we've been trained to receive education and to feel emotion without taking action. But when our education and when our emotion fail to lead us to action, it becomes harder and harder to act, and then it becomes harder and harder to feel, and then it becomes harder and harder to hear from God. Our ears grow deaf, our eyes grow dim, and like Jonah, we need something catastrophic to wake us up, to help us to hear again, to dig out a genuine prayer from our hearts. Which, in my opinion, in this story, doesn't happen until chapter 4. But the story of Jonah shows us this intractable kink in the human condition. And it's one that Scripture takes us beyond the story of Jonah to solve 
Because as we look at the Bible, as we read the entire Bible, the story of Scripture, and then as we look in the mirror, we see that God's people so often have Jonah-like hearts. Don't we? Unresponsive. Slow to obey. Despite all the knowledge we have. And so like Jonah, our hope is not in ourselves, but in the sovereign God who chases after us in his love. When we run, God chases us. You don't have to run. If you run, there are consequences. But if you run, he will chase you. Of all the books that we've read to our kids, my favorite book is this book called Runaway Bunny. Maybe you've read it. It's the story of a little bunny who wants to run away from home. There, you know it. But I first heard of this, of this book while watching a, a movie called Wit. Maybe you've seen that one. It's a movie about a tenured English professor who gets diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer. And the movie follows her as she, an expert in the poetry of John Donne about death and dying, death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. She's an expert in Donne's poetry. And now she has to process the impending fate of her own death. The movie follows her, and it gets down to the end of the movie, and she grows weaker and weaker, and she loses her hair, and she's near death when her former academic supervisor stops by her hospital to see her. And she climbs up in the bed with her, and she holds her in her arms. And of all of the books in the Western canon of literature that she could have read to this tenured English professor dying of cancer, the book that she chose is this book, Runaway Bunny. I'm going to share a little bit of it with you now. Once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away. So he said to his mother, I am running away. If you run away, said his mother, I will run after you. For you are my little bunny. If you run after me, said the little bunny, I will become a fish in a trout stream and I will swim away from you. If you become a fish in a trout stream, said his mother, I will become a fisherman and I will fish for you. If you become a fisherman, said the little bunny, I will become a rock on a mountain high above you. If you become a rock on the mountain high above me, said his mother, I will become a mountain climber, and I will climb to where you are. If you become a mountain climber, said the little bunny, I will become a flower in a hidden garden. If you become a flower in a hidden garden, said his mother, I will become a gardener, and I will find you. If you are a gardener and find me, said the little bunny, I will be a bird and fly away from you. If you become a bird and fly away from me, said his mother, I will be a tree that you come home to. You get the idea. I won't give away the ending. (laughs) But why, why did that doctoral advisor read that book to the woman dying of cancer? Because, she said, it is an allegory of the soul. 
wherever the soul hides, God will find it. I am running away, says Jonah. I will run after you, says the Lord. I am running away, you say. I will run after you, says God. And he does. He does, amen? You know the Footprints poem, the one about the man who looked back over his life with God as two sets of footprints on the beach. And the man is upset that the times when there's only one set of footprints and then God says, those were the times when I was carrying you. You heard that one? Now you have. I like the sentiment there. But I wonder if our life with God is represented by two sets of footprints. If it wouldn't be more accurate to say that if we looked at the footprints, we would see how often our footprints strayed off to the side this way and strayed off to the sides that way and went around in circles this way and went around in circles that way and meandered here for so long and then finally went a little bit to the right and how we would see the faithful footprints of God following us off the path to the right, to the left, and in circles, always chasing us, always reaching out to us, always working. There's something about that kind of relentless mercy, that kind of faithfulness, that kind of faithful pursuit that lets you know that this God can be trusted with your life, with your future, with your fears, with everything, because even now he's pursuing you. This is your great hope. And if you're impressed by your waywardness, and you're impressed by your passivity like you should be, oh, I'm so passive. I'm so bloated with knowledge. I'm so spiritually fat. If you're impressed by that, this is an invitation to be more impressed by Jesus who has chased us. You know, you think of the image of Jonah curled up in the boat the bottom of the boat. And so many times we feel that way, don't we? Um, even if we know in our heads that we should respond to God, sometimes it feels like we don't have the strength to do it. We're too discouraged. We've been burned. We're too discouraged. We feel too weak to get up and move in response to God's world, to God's word. And so sometimes it feels like the most logical response is just to curl up in a ball in a dark room and go to sleep. And that might have been the case But the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. We have responded unfaithfully to God's word. We have gone astray. We have failed in the evil we have done and the good we have left undone. But the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory Against all hope, God has chased after us, not with a storm of judgment, but with a Savior who has suffered the storm in our place. While we were sinners, Christ came running out of heaven to save us. You know, there's this place in the Gospels, I love it, Jesus is speaking to some of the most stubborn and unresponsive people that he encounters in his entire ministry, and they're asking him for a sign. And do you remember what he says? There's no sign that's going to be given to you except for one, Jonah. What a perfect thing to say. There's no sign that's going to be given to you except for one, Jonah. But it's a different Jonah. 
a better Jonah, one greater than Jonah. Because Jesus, the eternal son, is the better Jonah. He's given the mission not just to speak, but to be the word of God to people living in great selfishness and evil. Unlike Jonah, he faithfully obeyed. And he comes as our Savior. He took the storm of God's judgment upon himself. He reconciled us to God. Like Jonah, he remained in the utter darkness for three days. But when that time was finished, when death had done all that it could do, he rises. He rises. And he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. And he takes that authority and he puts it behind his church. And he says, now go, arise, call out to all nations. And tell them about my fitness. Who I am. What I've done. And teach them. What does he say? Teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Because when you really see Jesus, our prophet, our priest, our king, the only response that makes sense is to follow him wholeheartedly, immediately, and completely. Spiritual fatness exposes our passivity. Jesus evokes our participation. Have you seen him? Have you seen his glory? Because once you do, when you see him in his strength and beauty and his mercy and majesty and his gravity and gladness, when you see him, Passionate participation, wholehearted response is the only response that makes sense. The Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Could there ever be a better call to us to arise, to awake, and to call out? Will you pray with me? I invite you just for a moment before I pray to hear the word as what it is. When God's word is preached, it is not information, but an invitation to participation in a conversation. God speaks, it's not information, it's personal address. Like God has asked Adam, he's asking you, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Well, just let the sermon wash over you. Hear the word, receive the word as what it is, God speaking in his mercy to you. Words that will give life, words that will shatter complacency, words that will breathe new energy into dry bones. Words that will beget hope in your soul. That will let you know that tomorrow can be better than today. That God is at work. That God is alive. That God is moving. All of creation is responding to him. 
Won't you join in this great dance of passionate participation in the mission and work of God? Where are you? Look at your heart. But don't just look at your heart. Every time you look at your heart, look at Jesus ten times. Look at Jesus. Because it's only in seeing his beauty and hearing his words and knowing how much he loves you that you find the strength to get up from the bottom of that boat to awaken, to arise and call out to God and then to the rest of the world. Hear him speaking to you. Almighty Father, we come to you and it's our confession that we are like Jonah. We know so much and we obey so little. We are overstuffed with knowledge that doesn't always get exercised in obedience. And and yet it is also our confession that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that our great hope, our great hope is that we are loved by and belong to Jesus And by the Holy Spirit's power, we are being taught to say, Abba, Father, to be led by your Spirit, to live as those who know that we belong to you. So Lord, may it be that as you spoke your word to Jonah to awake him from his slumber, and you continue to pursue him throughout the rest of his experience in that book, that you would speak out to many in this congregation and bring them to life according to your word. Bring awakening, bring revival, bring new vision, give ears to hear, give a voice to cry out. We look to you to revitalize spiritual senses that have atrophied. You are our hope. You are our prophet, priest, and king. And as we see you, as we see you and hear you, may we respond wholeheartedly, immediately, and completely. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ.